Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the center in person and online. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. Although the 15th and 19th Amendments to the Constitution enshrined the right to vote regardless of race and guaranteed women the right to vote more than 100 years ago, the struggle for Black women's suffrage and representation continues today. We discuss that fight on this week's episode and highlight the history of Black women in America's representative democracy, including their roles as suffrage advocates, voters, and representatives. This panel features Nadia Brown, Professor of Government and Chair of the Women's and Gender Studies Program at Georgetown University, as well as Idol Family Fellow at the Anne Welsh McNulty Institute at Villanova University. Betty Collier-Thomas, Professor of History at Temple University and co-editor of African American Women and the Vote, 1837 to 1965. And Martha Jones, Society of Black Alumni Presidential Professor and Professor of History at Johns Hopkins University and author of the book, Vanguard. Lana Ulrich, Senior Director of Content at the National Constitution Center, moderates. This conversation was streamed live on November 9th, 2021. Here's Lana to get the conversation started. Thank you to everyone uh, here attending this wonderful seminar. And I'm so looking forward to this conversation with these wonderful scholars we have tonight. So Professor uh, Collier Thomas, I'd like to start with you. And I'd like to ask you about your landmark volume, African-American Women and the Vote, um, which begins in 1837 with the first anti-slavery convention of American women, which was an interracial gathering of women held in New York to define their roles independent of men in the crucial struggles of that era to end slavery in Southern states and racial discrimination in Northern states. And as your co-author Ann Gordon writes in the introduction, 1837 replaces 1848, which was the year of Seneca Falls, in order to emphasize the preeminency of anti-slavery agitation in the political history of African-Americans, including women. And the volume also ends with 1965, which is the passage of the Voting Rights Act. So I wanted to ask if you could just say a little bit more about that crucial date of 1837. Would you say that that is the starting point of the story of Black women's suffrage and representation in America? And why or why not? I wouldn't say that's the starting point um, for African-American women, but African-American women were certainly interested in it. But Lana, first I want to say that um, we didn't, uh, Anne and I did not author that book. It is an edited work. Um, I was at the Schlesinger Library um, and um, Anne asked, sent me a note and said, um, could she meet and talk with me? And I said, yes. And she said, um, what do you think is the most important um, subject that has not been dealt with in terms of, 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 of Black women's history and history, period? Now, you have to understand that that was in the 1980s, mid-1980s, when she asked that question. And I said, well, politics, I said, nothing has been written about politics in Black women. She said, well, how can we do? Um, I, I would like to, to uh, University of Massachusetts has given me some money, and I, um, I have been given the money to do a national conference, and then we want to put together a book. 
And she said, I don't know anybody in that area. I said, well, I know lots of people. So I mentioned Rosalind Turberg Penn and, and a number of persons um, in, in the field whom I knew were working on different topics. And so that's how that came to be. And we did that national um, conference, but the papers sat for <laughs> until, when was that book published? That book was published in the... Um, and, and, and around 2000, um, um, I think, late, um, yeah. So it was published decades after we had the conference and we had edited the papers. Um, so that's how that book began. So, you know, a lot of that is not original um, to me. My piece in that book is on Francis Ellen Watkins Harper, and that, too, was written to be published in 19th century, um, 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 was it Negro Americans by August Maya. And that was earlier. And I was invited to write a paper there. And I wrote the paper on Harper and August Maya. Any of you familiar with August Maya? Well, August Maya called me on a Sunday morning and said, Dr. Kaji Thomas, you cannot have 30-some pages on Francis Ellen Watkins Harper, Frederick Douglass only received 25. And so I called John Hope Franklin and he said, yes, that's why she, nobody knows who she is. And that's why she deserves those pages. And so I said, well, it doesn't have to be there. I was famous for just pulling things. And so I, I pulled it and, and that sat there then until we did that conference. So it was written much earlier. Um, so in terms of 1837, we thought that we should find people and we should trace it through this history through from 1837, right on up into the more recent period of that time. And that's what we did. We had no idea that this was going to turn into a major um, 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 book. But 1837 was a beginning point. But as Lisa Tetralt has explained and others now who have published so many books, we know far more now than we knew then. But what we wrote, the, the scholars wrote about Black women these two were seminal works for all of those people. Some of them were working on dissertations and all kinds of things. So that's how we came to that point. Now, Martha has, um, has, has written um, in her wonderful book a lot about the transitional period. And both Martha and I uh, wrote about that in our books on women and the church, <laughs> okay? Mine, Jesus, Jobs, and Justice, and, and hers, sing your moment, Martha. What is the title? All Bound Up Together. All Bound Up Together. I should remember that from Papa. <laughs> okay. And, and so that's how these works came to be. And, and I think we were, uh, Martha and I were among the first who began to trace um, um, the, the whole um, question of suffrage and, and African-Americans women struggle with that to the church, which is where it emanated. But not only that, 
did it emanate from there? But as I argue in Jesus, Jobs, and Justice, the women who uh, become so involved in the suffrage movement, the national suffrage movement, they are these church women. And it's, it's a very involved process. So the ascent of black women was very different from that of white women. But know ye this, one of the quotes that I sent um, John was from 1859 from Laura. And I was stunned when I saw that particular um, 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 piece and quote. I don't know who that woman was. And, you know, she was not um, um, uh, uh, mentioned, but obviously the people in that period knew. So in 1859, and obviously she was a free black woman, she makes that statement that said, we are as interested, colored women are as interested in politics as the colored men. That says it all. Colored women, black women, African-American women, whatever you want to call them then, they were there from the beginning and before the Civil War, concerned about politics, and you see it pulled all the way through. You see their debates in great detail on suffrage. And I have to stop because I do talk a lot. <laughs> and I don't want to go on, as my husband would say, preaching. <laughs> I don't want to go on. But you, you get the picture. So, you know, we can go on with that um, um, discussion, but there is a lot there, and we can't put it all in these books. We can well, only definitely. put pieces. Absolutely, and thank you so much for clarifying that and for telling the story about that conference. It's just really interesting to hear how that came together and amazing that it took that long to get that to get that work out there. And uh, you mentioned your your research into Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. I know you were telling us the story as well about how you discovered her while you were researching Black newspapers. So I, I might want to ask you a little bit later on just more about that research and any other figures that you came across uh, during, during that. So Professor Jones, Professor Collier Thomas mentioned your work in this area as well. Um, so feel free to respond to anything that she said and maybe say a little bit more about some of the earlier movements, uh, the, the important of the church, the anti-slavery societies, color conventions, anything else that might help shed additional light in this area. Well, thanks to you, Lana, for um, uh, hosting us along with Jeff Rosen in the National Constitution Center. It's a tremendous honor to be here with uh, Dr. Brown and Dr. Collier Thomas, who has really um, been far too modest about um, her own work um, and the role of the volume um, that she co-edited on African-American women in the vote. Um, one of the important things that I say about my own um, evolution as a historian is that I benefited from that volume um, from the work of um, Dr. Rosalind Turborg Penn, um, because I read this work before I read the major works on, say, Susan Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, right? My introduction to the history of women in the vote came from this path-breaking work on Black women and voting rights. And I consider myself fortunate because 
in a sense, I didn't have to unlearn right, the other histories that were so um, predominant for far too long. Um, and um, and I thank Dr. Collier Thomas for including me anywhere in her orbit on this. But it is correct that I think one of the things we share is this strong conviction that you cannot understand the history of Black women's politics if you don't understand Black women's politics in their churches, in their faith communities. Um, and one of the things about um, that readers of Vanguard are sometimes surprised to discover is that the book begins in church, um, and it begins in the African Methodist Episcopal Church um, with a figure, um, an extraordinary Black woman preacher named Jerina Lee. Um, now we are in the 1820s, not the 1830s, and I begin with Jerina Lee because it turns out in order for Black women to um, fully enter, to fully level a claim on American politics, they have to begin with ideas, right? Before you get to the activism, before you get to the organizing, before you get to the interventions, they need a critique, right? They need a view, right, that challenges a political order that countenances racism and sexism in the intersection of the two, and hence Black women's exclusion from politics. So we go back to women like Jarena Lee in the church because that is the crucible, right? That is a critical crucible where Black women are working out a vision for American politics, one that they will champion for a very long time alone, um, but very importantly, in these early years, a critique, right, that begins to make room for them in American politics. And as you allude to, Lana, um, we will see that manifest, yes, in Black churches, particularly Black Methodist churches in these early years. We will see it manifest in anti-slavery societies. Um, we will see that critique manifest in the political movement that we refer to as the colored conventions. Um, again and again, Black women coming to the podium, picking up their pens in the anti-slavery and Black press, um, leveling that critique that says no racism and no sexism in politics. Um, but the church um, we can't tell that story without telling the story of Black women in church. Professor Brown, please feel free to comment on anything that Dr. Collier Thomas and, and uh, Professor Jones have said. And your work focuses a lot on contemporary issues relating to uh, suffrage representation and intersectionality, um, uh, which Dr. Jones just mentioned. And you also write about um, Black women voters, but also candidates and representatives, uh, for instance, in your articles and in your book, Sisters in the State House. Um, but before we get to talking a little bit about the current state of representation um, from your research, just wanted to know if there were any, is the, if there was anything about the history that's been discussed so far um, or any of the figures from the past that, that speak to you as well. I know in your book you cite, for example, Dr. Anna Julia Cooper. Um, is there anybody else that you wanted to mention or put on the table too as being central to understanding this history. Yeah, so I'm, I'm very thankful to be able to share space today with colleagues, uh, Professor Betty Collier-Thomas and uh, Professor Jones, because their work is so canonical for 
people like me in political science to do this research on Black women's politics because there wasn't a there there. Um, our foremother, Jewel Prestige, is one of the first Black women to receive a PhD in political science and started studying Black women. Um, and before that, right, there really were not in-depth studies on Black women, period right, Black women in politics. And as many of the audience will know, political science and history used to be um, the same field. And then after World War II, political science splits off and becomes its own, you know, its own thing. So much of our origins as political scientists, we owe to historians. But the discipline, the, the ways that history was enabled to really dig deep and understand the presence of Black Americans in the United States at the founding of our democracy is something that we haven't been able to do quite fully in political science yet. So political scientists stand on the work of people like Professor Collier Thomas and Professor Jones in order to get us to the stage where we are now. So there would not be... Um, scholars like myself or Wendy Smooth, Evelyn Simeon, Nicole Floyd Alexander, if we weren't for historians, right? Because there just there just wasn't um, much of an understanding that Black women had different political behavior, that Black women had different political views and pre policy preferences, had different political tactics. So, um, so I, I share this to say that this is a new field. Black women's studies and politics is new. I wrote the first book on Black women state legislators in 2014, right? So very, very, very recently. Just goes to show that. So bringing in figures like Anna Julia Cooper, Francis L. Um, Ellen Watkins Harper, are people that we know throughout history have been doing Black women's politics. We just haven't talked about them in our discipline of political science. And so I start my classes with this historical look, and I've had um, just the fortunate opportunity to teach both Professor Collier Thomas and Professor Jones's work in the beginning of the semester, right? Because they need, my students really need to deeply understand that what we do in political science now, right, since the Voting Rights Act, since Black women have more access to political representation, doesn't mean that Black women just woke up one morning, right, in the 1960s and said, now we're going to engage in politics. But instead, right, Black women have been toiling for political rights and act as, as activists, as grassroots leaders before the ballot. And that if, I think it's incorrect to think that Black women's politics in my own field, you know, subfield of political science, starts only when we're seeing Black women as elected officials or Black women who are casting ballots, right? But as Professors Collier Thomas and Jones have mentioned, right, this is a long lineage that starts in 1820 and even before. So in my own work, I, I oftentimes start with Maria, Mariah Stewart um, as someone who is leading a charge as a raced woman, right? And she's talking to audiences about Black women's political concerns very early on. And this is a, a figure that I honestly would not have known about if it weren't for the work of historians. And I think it's so important that we're having this um, interdisciplinary conversation today because there has to be a much more expansive view of what Black women are doing politically. So while we're championing uh, Kamala Harris, the first Black woman VP, we have to understand the soldiers on which she stands. I am so pleased that you mentioned uh, Julia Prestige, because I stumbled across her at least almost 40 years ago. And 
I was looking for trying to find out what had been written by political scientists. And I discovered nothing. And I checked again um, 30 years ago when I arrived at Temple. I said, well, maybe there's more now. Nothing. Until finally, um, I stumble across Wendy Smooth. And I said, why aren't political scientists writing about Black women in the vote? Well, um, Prestige makes the point. She was concerned that that in political science uh, um, departments, um, nothing was taught about Black people in politics, period. And Black women were totally excluded. So she was, I put her at the front in terms of of, of a pioneer, and people don't know her name today. So thank you very, very much for that. And yes, I have all the copies of your work about those states that are going in in politics to stay in my next book. So I have you too. (laughs) So we want to thank you too for that work. Yes, definitely. Thank you, Professor Brown, too, for for your groundbreaking work in this area. So, uh, Professor Collier Thomas, speaking about th- this this new history, um, and as as Dr. Jones and and Dr. Brown mentioned, your work in this area and your original research. Um, just going back to the stories that you told us about, looking through these newspapers, discovering Francis Ellen Watkins Harper. You mentioned that. These were conventions that were being held across the country that were made up of all all black men and just she was the only woman. She was the only woman there that was speaking and writing. And and so, you know, I, I think maybe if you could just say a little bit more about her, um, how significant it was that you discovered this information about her and, and I guess more about your original research in this area and how you've you've contributed to help building up this um, foundation of work around these questions. Well, first of all, my dissertation was on the Baltimore Black community, 1865 to 1910. Um, It was recommended um, um, to me by, I can't think of his last name. He was major, major scholar at the University of Chicago, Richard, um, who did slavery in the cities. You know his name. No, I was looking at Martha, thinking that she would know his name. But anyway, uh, Wade. Richard Wade. Wade. Yes, I took a course, a research course under him at Emory University. And his thing was that all of us had to do this original research on urban centers. And he wanted Atlanta. He was a visiting professor. So therefore, he was looking for us to do the research for him. And so he decided that... I should, um, he wanted me to go through the minutes uh, of the, um, the minutes uh, of the, of the, the city minutes uh, of Atlanta and track from 1860 up to the turn of the century, um, the patterns of race and what they were doing. Well, he had to go get permission from the city uh, for, for me to do that. And they put a table out in the lobby. Now, this is in the days of segregation. Let's make this very clear. When I was doing my master's, we were still in segregation, okay? That was in the 1960s, 1965. And so they put this table in the lobby, 
And they brought up these big old books. And some of you who have worked in those books, they, they like felt those old books. And, 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 and it looked to me like the um, red, red clay dust of Georgia. And there I was sitting and all these white people would come and stare at me. And I went page by page and, and did all these note cards. We didn't have Xerox. We didn't have uh, 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 internet or anything. It was by hand on the note cards. And so I tracked everything uh, that they were doing. And the first thing I saw, they were moving the bodies of blacks out of white cemeteries. Um, they were doing, they were, if you were down in what was the downtown area sitting on a bench after six o'clock, they would arrest you and put you on the chain gang for years, free labor. I was just amazed. It opened me up to a whole new world. So from that, when I went to Washington, D.C. to teach at Howard University, following that, then he was, um, he was one of the people leading the uh, political campaign, and I can't think of who that was either, for the Democrats. And so I went down to his office and I said, you know, I'm working on a dissertation. What should I do a topic on? He said, well, you know, all these cities have been done on race relations and so forth, but nobody has touched Baltimore. And they have done nothing on Baltimore because it's neither Southern nor Northern. The patterns are not clear. And he said, you should do that. And so I said, okay, well, little did I know there was only one article, scholarly article that had ever been written. Nobody had done anything. So I said, well, how am I going to do this? And I said, well, in 1954, you might know, was when um, um, they began to um, microfilm um, black newspapers to preserve them. Thousands had already been lost. And so the Baltimore, in Baltimore, um, the Afro-American and, and several other little newspapers had been, um, um, well, only the Baltimore Afro-American um, was done because I had to go to Enoch you know, Pratt Library. And, and, and um, you know what I'm talking about, Martha, Enoch you know, Pratt Library. Mm -hmm. And when I first went there and I asked, I just thought the library had lots of stuff on Black people. And I said, well, I'm looking for them. They said, we don't have anything on Negroes. <laughs> and so I was amazed. And so I started with that Baltimore um, newspaper. And I fell upon these conventions. And these were the conventions that were being held because the South had to try to re-enter the Union. And so here on this stage, was this black woman. I hadn't seen black women in anything. Well, of course, you didn't have much to see them in at that time. And I said, who is this woman? So therefore, I became cognizant of her and started picking up pieces here and there. And so I started with those newspapers and indexing those newspapers myself. And I was just stunned with the world of information 
in those newspapers. Um, what was it? Um, the, the New York Freedman, just a number in that late 19th century. And of course, they expanded into the 20th century. So I picked the pieces, as I put it, all these little pieces on Harper. And, and I was, my mind, I was just blown away with her. And in fact, Nell Irvin Painter heard me give a paper on her um, at a conference in Miami. And she said, you know, I'm with the University of North Carolina Press. I want you to go home and I want you to get that paper typed into me because we are going to publish it. I had a contract coming to Temple to do that work, but I turned because the Lilly Endowment offered me a million dollars to do the history of black women and religion. Go all over the world where my researchers did for that book. So therefore, Harper got set aside. <laughs> and that paper then um, um, that I wrote earlier sat there. And from there then, and from reading those newspapers page by page, I discovered a world and learned everything you could think about, uh, about black women and black people, editorials. And so I started, as I said, typing out and copying this stuff. So now I have a massive archive on all these different subjects. So I know these people in different worlds, you see. Now, I don't suggest and none of, none of my students these days would do that kind of work, okay? But I loved it. You have to love history to do what we do and political science to do what you do. And it is tedious and, and it's lonely, but that's what you have to do. So that's how I came um, um, to Harper. And I have five chapters of a book on um, um, Harper that has been sitting downstairs now for years. Maybe I'll get back to it at some point with material that people have not used also, but it's hard. If Thank I could, you for sharing could that. Could I chime and, uh, in? Oh, sorry, I'm going to sure, chime in ahead, if I Professor could, Jones, Rana, yeah. because um, once again, I want to just um, reveal myself as someone who follows in uh, Dr. Collier Thomas's footsteps. Um, my book, All Bound Up Together, um, is titled for a quote from one of Francis Harper's great speeches from the 1860s um, in the struggles over um, voting rights and the voting rights for women versus black folk, women, black women versus white women, and more. Um, you know, she is. Uh, native Baltimorean, um, raised by an uncle who's an educator, an activist, and more, um, an anti-slavery lecturer, a poet. I think she, in many, for a long time, she got more attention from literary scholars than she did from political historians. Um, but to me, there is no one who better exemplifies um, Black women's politics in this middle 19th century period, in part because Watkins Harper is, is one of those figures who teaches us what is distinct about Black women's political vision. And it is that critique of racism and sexism. But when she comes to those meetings, part of what she talks about is not about women's property rights, not even about the vote. She wants to talk about how Black women are being abused 
in segregated transportation, on ejected from ladies' cars, ridiculed, um, and more. Um, and she really um, teaches us the ways in which Black women distinctly come to politics through their own distinct experiences and concerns. Um, she goes on to be um, a great lecturer in the post-war period in the American South. She will um, continue to be um, a um, novelist um, and raise her own daughter um, to be an elocutionist. Um, she has a remarkable arc of a life, but for me, um, she's indispensable for trying to tell this distinct story that I think we're all trying to um, discover of how Black women particularly come to politics. And Frances Harper um, is there to tell that story by the 1860s with um, great eloquence. We might also add that um, if you go to the Liberator, you mm. can you can you can find um, 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 extensive information. This is before the war uh, on Harper. Um, Harper um, was. Um, um, she, she was a speaker on on the platform with many of the um, many of the people, whites, who were speaking about slavery, enslavement, and that's how she earned her living. Um, so, he, 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 no one has really fully tracked her in the Liberator. Let me add. <laughs> and so, so if you've got a graduate student or somebody, they should do that. That foregrounds her work that she does after the war. Also, um, it, it, there was a great piece written, I think it was in the AME Christian Recorder, about um, how, how, how Harper was considered an equal as a speaker to Frederick Douglass, but he earned more money, the article went on to say. Okay, that's in the Christian Recorder. And, that, uh, and they compared her, I can't think of the white woman's name right now, um, who 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 was um, considered to be one of the top lecturers of of, of that time, um, but finally they stopped comparing her because she was in a league of her own. Great, yes, um, and we at the NCC we've learned a lot about Frances Ellen Watkins Harper um, both through your work, Professor Collier Thomas, and your your ad advice to us on the exhibit. I know you were one of our advisors, um, so for anybody in the audience interested in learning more about her, we'll post links in the chat to um, we will post the Liberator link to that as well as links to the Nineteenth Amendment exhibit um, and some of the online interactives we have, so you can find out more. We have some. Um, um, audience questions. And um, Professor Brown, I want to tee up one or two to you. Speaking about um, additional figures, um, Warren Wolf asks, can we please mention Shirley Chisholm? I know you said you've been doing some research into her. Um, I know Professor Collier Thomas, I think you may, have, you may know her, so you could share a little bit too. But Professor Brown, if you want to maybe speak about Shirley Chisholm, and then Charles Morgan asks, where can I find other women in politics that have been overlooked? Right. So thank you for both of those questions. Um, so I want to start with the um, the latter question first, because I, I think it's so important that we ask the other question about like, why aren't we, why don't we know about these women? Why are their histories hidden or um, are they hiding in plain sight? 
And so some of the things that I, I particularly ask my students to do is walk around and see whose names are on buildings, whose names aren't there. Um, we're, I'm in Georgetown in Washington, D.C., and this is a place where there is so much history where women, Black women's names are on buildings, on street corners right there. They're part of our living memories. Um, but we walk past them every day, but we don't spend time figuring out who they are. And if we open our eyes, right, to, to learn about who these namesakes are, um, that's just everyday empowerment, right, that, that we can be engaging in. But that doesn't mean that that's half the story, right, because there are so many women that we don't know who they are. Um, and that's woeful, right? The erasure of marginalized identities or people that have contrary views to American politics or portray a different side of America, right? Ask America to live up to its constitutional duties and responsibilities to our, all citizens are oftentimes um, hidden underneath rugs, right? We're, we're not thinking about the women who, um, Black women communists, for example, right? We're not thinking about Black women socialists, those that, um, that don't uphold American democratic values the way that we want. So I would, I would ask us again to think about, you know, the, the reasons and why we don't talk about some and then why there are some that we do and we don't acknowledge who they are, right, in kind of their fullness. Um, and so to talk a little bit about Shirley Chisholm, yeah, it's so important to, to mention her name, right? This is the first Black woman who's elected to Congress in 1968, who then turns around and seeks a Democratic Party's nomination for president in 1972, goes on to serve um, in Congress for many years, retires, and then leads a life of continued public service. The part about Shirley Chisholm that is most, um, I think, remarkable is that she comes from an educator's background, right? She was a school teacher, someone who um, defeated a Black Panther, right, for, uh, I'm sorry, civil rights icon for her seat in Congress. But, right, the voters that elected her knew her, knew her passion in the community for helping families, for helping children, for helping low-income folks, immigrants like, like her. And so her passion for people is what voters really embraced. And I think some of this kind of gets divorced from how we idolize her as being this first, right, this trailblazer, but not turning back to the policies and politics that she, that she championed, much of which we see today. Again, this is something that Professor Jones mentioned. Black women's politics often come out of their own lived experiences. So the things that they're fighting for, for in politics today, much like Chisholm, are rooted in their own lived experiences, how they've experienced the world, the kind of the challenges and troubles that they've seen. And a lot of this, right, again, is, is wrapped up in the intersectional nodes of racism, sexism, classism, you know, um, living in a white heteropatriarchal society. But that that doesn't diminish Black women's shine, right? They find ways out of no way. And this is the work that I, I wanted to do is um, to show this very strong-willed force of Black women in politics to put their issues to the fore, right? This is the same thing that, that Chisholm did. It was not necessarily taking on what the Democratic Party wanted her to take on, what Black men in the Democratic Party wanted her to take on, to be 100% honest, right? It was her conviction of living this life in a Black woman's body, being um, responsible and responsive to her constituents and constituents nationwide, right? Recognizing that there weren't 
other locales with Black women representatives. And so she represents more than just those that were in her Brooklyn district, right? But thinking about Black women nationwide until um, Barbara Jordan joins her. And then later on, we see Yvonne Braithwaite Burke um, join her in Congress. Um, but I, I also want to mention, um, I, I want to wrap up soon to be, be respectful of time, but that Shirley Chisholm has daughters. Shirley Chisholm has heirs and people that bear the legacy of her political activism and her mantra, right? One in which they can't, you know, disentangle a feminist ideology from a black from a black ideology, right? Seeing and living in this world as a black woman requires black women of politics to speak up using different kinds of tactics. One thing that Shirley Chisholm was really extraordinarily good at was talking to her colleagues, those that sometimes held racist sentiments, um, people that ordinarily people would say. Why are you talking to this person, right? This this is a, a congressperson who believes in segregation. But she would see a kernel of good in someone or a good in their policies and try to work that work that angle. And that's what black women in politics do, right? Some of them, um, you know, they're they're ideologues, but there's also people who can be ideologues and then also work to bring a consensus to the table, right? And trying to figure out how do we work with people to get a policy passed, particularly right when you need a majority, you need a coalition to form things. So Chisholm was really a stout astute in knowing how to do this. Um, not that she won all the time, not that her, her tactics weren't without criticism, but it, it goes back to this Black woman's ethos, right, of understanding your position through your own positionality and then finding ways to work with others. You'll be very happy to know one of my former students, um, her book on Chisholm will be published by Oxford University in the spring. She called me and told me several days ago. Her name is Zynga Frazier. Oh, yes. And she's at Brooklyn. So Zynga's book, I was surprised, will be coming out that she has worked on for 14 years. And so I'm just as proud as I can be um, of, 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 of Zynga. And I can promise you it's going to be um, groundbreaking. But I, um, I, knew, I, I knew Shirley Chisholm, too. Um, I, if you look in Sisters in the Struggle, you will see a photograph of me with Shirley Chisholm. Shirley Chisholm um, was very concerned about her constituents. And so she developed um, policies and a number of things that would impact her people there in New York. Well, in the 1980s, um, as you had the um, development of black museums, then you had all of these storefronts and places that had popped up across the country and called themselves museums. And so she pressured the National Endowment for the Humanities um, for them to fund, for them to fund um, programs where these people could apply for grants to do exhibitions, professional exhibitions, and so forth. And so I shared um, at the National Black Caucus weekend, um, three years, we had a session. Um, Peggy Cooper, Peggy Cooper, a lot of people don't know who I'm talking about now. Mm -hmm. Some do. 
Peggy Cooper, Shirley Chisholm, and, and myself on those sessions at the Black Caucus, where we were speaking to, of course, um, um, persons from all over the country who were involved in politics. And we were arguing for monies for these institutions. She managed to get um, uh, the um, national, the head of the national, and uh, uh, not the head of the, Joe Duffy was the head of the National Endowment for the Humanities, um, but the head of one of the um, particular uh, divisions to fund then these workshops to teach these people, lay people, a lot of them are lay people, um, um, how to write a proposal that could be funded. They didn't know how to write the proposals. So she asked me to work with these people. I said, okay. And so I became the person who developed the program and traveled all over the United States to see holes in the wall, to see um, strange places that they call museum. But she was concerned about the Jamaica, New York um, um, Black Museum because they had applied and applied and could not get a grant. And so um, she then had me come to New York and I was shocked. She had a long white limousine to pick me up. <laughs> and I went and talked with all of the heads of, of these, um, these institutions there and worked to help them write those proposals. But then we found out that they could write the best proposals and that NEH uh, were willing to fund a, a, a proposal for you to do that, but not to fund a program. And so that became the next issue. So she was into all kinds of things and, and, and really worked closely with her people to see that their issues were addressed because she came from the bottom in those women's clubs Okay. There in Brooklyn, um, and and had worked her way up into politics, and she tells that story in one of her books. You see, I think it's unbought and unbossed, one of them. So yes, there's much to be said there. So we look forward to Zinga's book, and we look forward Absolutely. to many others as well. Absolutely, yeah, we'll definitely keep an eye out for that book um, at the NCC, and hope to do a program. Um, when that comes out. Professor Jones, feel free to add anything more to the discussion about Shirley Chisholm. And in the Q&A, there's a couple other women that have been mentioned as well, including Barbara Jordan, Polly Murray, um, Fannie Lee Hamer. So, you know, feel free to, to comment on, on any of those figures too. Yeah, these are, um, you know, the women on whose shoulders uh, Vice President Kamala Harris tells us she stands. Um, these women who are um, work toward and then work beyond the finally the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which for the first time in U.S. history brings black women and men right, to the polls um, relatively unfettered. Um, so partly in our conversation, we began with where, do we, where does this story begin? Um, one of the misnomers about the history of women in the vote in the U.S. is that it ends in 1920 with the adoption of the 19th Amendment. But for too many Black American women, the 19th Amendment is 
a disappointment. It is a failure. They remain disenfranchised by Jim Crow laws, by lynching and violence. Um, and so we must tell the story all the way to 1965 and beyond. Um, the great Barbara Jordan from Houston, Texas, the first black woman from the American South to be elected to Congress, who is there to open the impeachment proceedings in the House of Representatives against President Richard Nixon. It is in a, just a stunning moment in U.S. history, and Jordan knows precisely where she stands, how she got there, and what it means for her to be um, initiating these charges against the president of the United States. Someone asked about Pauli Murray, um, a long lifetime of activism um, from um, very left party politics party politics, as Dr. Brown pointed to, all the way to her um, uh, investiture as a priest um, in the Episcopal Church, I think a real inheritor of the tradition of the church women who we were talking about um, just a bit earlier. Um, the great Fannie Lou Hamer, who is um, getting um, such um, important attention now um, with two new books um, from Dr. Keisha Blaine and Dr. Kate Larson. Um, you know, Hamer is to me the sort of figure who um, understands um, not only politics and voting rights in the in the gritty trenches of Mississippi. She understands the television camera. Um, she understands um, how to bring. Black Americans' claims for voting rights um, to Congress, to the president, to the political parties, but into the living rooms of Americans. And she does so, I think, with almost unparalleled effect. Um, so there are so many women I think we could hold up on an evening like this. These are just some. Um, but I think Vice President Harris um, is right when she gently but deliberately points us to this chapter in U.S. political history and says, now it is time. If this is not a chapter that you knew, it is time to learn this chapter. And um, clearly all our work um, is um, there for folks to um, come to and to understand better what the vice president was trying to teach us um, back in the summer of 2020 when she accepted the Democratic nomination. Professor Brown, we're just a few minutes away from the end of the program. Um, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about your advice to um, teacher, other teachers in schools who want to teach students about the, this history. And we also have a question from Drew ben Benfer, who asks, what guiding questions do you recommend for high school students who are studying the political history of African-American women? Well, I would love to pick up where Professor Jones stopped. So it's the political history to the modern day. So um, Professor Jones ends Vanguard with um, looking at Stacey Abrams and her legacy that's building really upon women like Fannie Lou Hamer, right? So there are stories that women like Fannie Lou Hamer who have um, have lost, right? Fannie Lou Hamer does not get elected to Congress, right? She runs. Um, she, she tries to have the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party set. Doesn't happen, right? And that's where her story could have ended. But it doesn't. We remember her the same way we remember Stacey Abrams, whose story could have ended when she lost the 2018 gubernatorial race. Um, and now we see that she has a much longer political life. And so I, I would 
push us to think about these connections um, and how for Black women's politics, what looks like a loss is not a loss, right? Black women are like a phoenix, right? We, we rise from the ashes, right? There's things that Black women keep fighting for because the politics aren't done. The, the job isn't over. And so I would, I would um, suggest that um, high school students learn from the work of Professor Jones, Professor Collier Thomas, much of which is super accessible, right? It, it is written in ways that, you know, lay people can read and understand them. Political science, not so much, um, unfortunately. Um, but I would, um, but my own work is ethnographic. It's qualitative, right? It leads with the, the narratives of Black women who are running for office and are serving in office, not to bring voice to the powerless, right? Not to speak, you know, not to amplify the voices of people that don't have a microphone, but to shape them in ways that are, um, recognizable to political scientists. So if I were if I were looking to to create text for for high school students, I would start with some of these more narrative based approaches um, as opposed to kind of leading with these quantitative methods that are really heavy um, and statistics and having to have a background um, and advanced methods that many high school students don't have. Thank you so much, Professor Collier Thomas, Professor Jones, and Professor Brown for such an illuminating and interesting and deep conversation on this important topic. I'm sorry that we have to close. I hope to continue this conversation um, with future programming. And for um, all of you who joined tonight, thank you so much for being here. Um, we'll post this video on our website. We'll also podcast the audio out. So um, that will come out um, on our podcast and all of the resources that were posted to the chat will be available on our website as well in case you're interested in learning more. Thank you again. Have a good evening and we'll see you at the next program. Take care. This episode was produced by John Guerra, Lana Ulrich, Tanea Tauber, and me, Jackie McDermott. It was engineered by the National Constitution Center's AV team. This program was made possible through the generous support of the McNulty Foundation in partnership with the Anne Welsh McNulty Institute for Women's Leadership at Villanova University. It's part of the National Constitution Center's Women and the Constitution Initiative. Our Women in the Constitution Initiative kicked off last year to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment throughout 2020 and beyond. The initiative includes a new long-term exhibit on the 19th Amendment, as well as constitutional conversations and debates, podcast episodes, blog posts, and educational materials for learners of all ages. We'll link to the initiative's homepage in our show notes, or you can find it at constitutioncenter.org debate on our special projects page. Check out the full lineup of our upcoming programs and register to join us virtually at constitutioncenter.org debate. You can join us live via Zoom, watch our YouTube live stream, or watch the recorded videos after the fact in our media library at constitutioncenter.org constitution. As always, we'll share those programs on the podcast too, so stay tuned here. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify, and join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.